I, I do want to tell all of our listeners that you deserve, you deserve that job. Uh, you've got to work for it and you have to, it's going to be hard, right? <laughs> and it was definitely hard for me. And there were times where I was like, I, I don't want to send this thank you note. I just want to go to bed. I have a busy day tomorrow. And I pushed through and that was pretty much daily that I was kind of on LinkedIn, sending thank you notes, having phone calls. It's going to be hard, but you deserve that job. And, um, and don't, don't tell yourself you don't. And as long as you kind of pursue it vigorously, you'll be in that seat. This is your host with the most, Kenny Vaughn. I play for Team Breakline, and I am joined once again with my partner in crime. What is up, everybody? It's Sophia. I also play for Team Breakline, and welcome back to the Breakline Arena. I would like to kick things off by reading you guys a lovely little review that our dear friend Let's Go Do Three Three left for us. Okay. Five stars. It says. Out of the seemingly millions of choices that are out there, you won't regret taking the time to listen to this podcast. Kenny, Sophia, Bethany, and the entire Breakline team have done a fantastic job with everything ranging from topic selection to cracking a few lighthearted jokes throughout the discussion. You won't even realize how much time has gone by. Thank you so much for leaving this review. It made me smile that at least someone is loving these jokes. Um, And if you guys would like to be featured on our next episode, please feel free to leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. It helps the show tremendously. And we are so grateful to get to hear from you guys. Well, you know, and the the great thing about it is, is for those listeners who are new to the arena, we are out here trying to drop some insights. We have some Mm -hmm. phenomenal just leaders within the tech industry who come in and they give us this behind the scenes look into their companies, their organizations, leadership lessons, these great philosophies. And oh, by the way, you get a chance to hear from our Breakline community, our alums. So we're super excited to share these stories. Um, we get a chance to talk to one of our Breakline alums today. Her name is Ariana Pibus. So before we dive into this episode, Sophia would love if you could take a moment to just share with us a little bit more about Andoral and the work that they're doing. Yeah, so Andoral, they build this, this cutting edge hardware and software products for national security challenges. So their products are super actively supporting a, a wide range of missions, including military base defense, they're doing critical infrastructure, border security, counter drone technologies. I mean, Andrel is is doing the good work. And we have so many incredible Breakline alums who have gone through the program, successfully pivoted, and now are continuing their journeys at Andoral. So this is exciting for me as well because I got a chance to have this great conversation with Ariana. In case you didn't know, she is a missing operations engineer at Andoral. Prior to joining Andoral, she graduated from the Naval Academy, which made her a fourth generation service member on her dad's side of the family. She joined the submarine force where she was one of the first women uh, to step into that specific military specialty. And then on her mom's side of the family, she shares this really inspiring journey that her mom who was a, an immigrant from Bolivia, shares an inspiring story about her mother's journey here, which makes her first-generation American. So 
super excited to share her story. She is a transition expert, and we are so thankful that you are here to, uh, to hear stories of our amazing alumni. So thank you all for joining us. Uh, I don't know about you, Sophia, but you think we should give the listeners what they came here for? Yes, Ariana, take it away. So, Ariana, how you doing this morning? You doing okay? Hey, good morning, Kayvon. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing outstanding. And for all of our listeners right now, I want to I want to start off by giving uh, Ariana a kudos because it is quite early where she is calling in from. I I I, I reached out to her and said, "Hey, you have an amazing story. Would love for you to share your story with our community." And in typical Breakline alum fashion, she said, "You let me know where I need to be and when I need to be there." And she showed up. So I just want to start by saying thank you, Ariana, because I know it's, it's pretty early where you're out there in, uh, in Cali time. So appreciate you making time for our Breakline community. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. I Sometimes I do this to myself where I've got, I'm not, I'm not normally a morning person, but sometimes I'll intentionally set myself an early morning meeting just to make sure I'm up and so I can start doing things after that. And then I always get a little bit mad at myself the night before. <laughs> not in this case. In this case, I was excited, but... Just to, give, just to give you an example, I have a recurring meeting with a colleague of mine who lives in the UK on Fridays at 6.30, so I always have to time manage the night before. But it always works out well. We have our cup of coffee and we have a good conversation. And then I have a productive morning. See, I feel like this is a great segue because in just learning more about you, you, you are a fascinating person. I love the approaches that you take to things, the way that you navigated your professional transition from the Navy to tech was amazing, best in class, if I say so myself. We're going to dive into all that here in a second. But before we do, I just want to know if you could share with our listeners a little bit more about your family history. As I was learning about your family, I realized there were some very cool parallels that we both shared. So both of us are fourth generation military on our father's side, which I think was very cool. And then on our mother's side, we are both first-generation Americans. And I know your mom is immigrated over from Bolivia. So would love if you could just share a little bit more about your, your childhood, some of the lessons that you learned as a military brat growing up with you know, a Bolivian family. Would love if you could just share some of those insights with our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So, so as, you, as you also experience yourself, Kayvon, growing up in a military family, it can be a little hectic. We were moving every two years. In fact, before this, because I had lost count, I had to, I just wrote out all the places that I'd lived since the time I was born to the time I graduated high school. That was 11 places. And I spent, I, during my high school time was, was in three different, enrolled in three different schools. And for me, that was kind of, I consider that normal. I mean, was it, was I happy about it all the time? No, especially as I kind of went through middle school and high school and started to form friendships that I considered very important at the time. But it, in hindsight, turned me into a very resilient person, somebody who is open to changes and in fact, seeks change and seeks new opportunities. And I don't want to say like intentionally putting myself out of my comfort zone because I don't think of it that way. I just, I just find new things exciting. And uh, I'm very grateful for that experience growing up because it made me like that. And it made me a little bit more of an open-minded 
an understanding person and someone that I think it's pretty easy for me to step into a new place and, and make friends with people, you know, form relationships and, and form trust and with new people right away. So what's cool about that is I can also relate to that as a military brat. I think as we're going through some of these experiences, it is difficult, you know, as a teenager to, I went to four different high schools to move around oh, in different deep. places. Look, you know, I, I try to get all the postcards. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's tricky, right? But I think one of the coolest things that you just pointed out is that these decisions or these experiences rather really inform the people that we become. And I know that you ended up going to the Naval Academy, but before we dive into that, would love to just hear some more insight into that lineage of service that permeates through your family. Yeah, absolutely. I think the way my father's teaching style is, he doesn't really say much. He's a very kind of a stoic, quiet person. And so the influence he had on me wasn't wasn't so much like spoken or directed. Definitely, my mom is definitely more of a of a directional type, and so we'll, we can dig into that. But I think growing up, I I just followed my father's example uh, and, and took note of the way he approached things when he was solving problems out loud, or if he was talking about uh, conflict at work and you know out loud and the way he was going to deal with it. I I kind of took note. I'm not even sure I realized that I was taking these mental notes, but so, as so I grew we, older. Can, we, can yeah. we pause for a second? Because I think for, for context here, we may have to brag on your dad for a little bit. We ain't got to put all the Kool-Aid out there in the streets, but when you when you talk about conflict at work, I know you know that can mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people. Can can you give a little bit more background into some of the work that your that your dad did in his time in the Navy? Yeah, so so my father spent thirty four years in the Navy eventually making it up to the rank of uh, vice admiral, ending his career as the deputy commander of U.S. SOCOM. So that's, it was pretty cool to be in a family that's got four generations of Navy, uh, and especially a father who, who was a three-star admiral who has had a pretty pretty amazing career uh, and, and very well-esteemed by his peers. And, and that's not something that I had to go out and seek. I heard it constantly when I would cross paths with somebody who worked with him, who worked for him, who who maybe led him. They would go out of their way to tell me how awesome my father was. So it, it's pretty cool to, to hear that as a daughter from just random strangers as you meet them about your father. Mm. And for, for those of our listeners who don't, who aren't coming from a military background, SOCOM is Special Operations Command. So as you think of folks like the Navy SEALs, some of those very elite units that go out and do some of the most dangerous uh, missions. These are the type of folks that uh, that Ariana's father is, is leading and training. So just wanted to give that context for our listeners. And I think, you know, as someone who's also coming from a military family, I think what you just shared really resonates with me as well, because I feel like those relationships that our parents build with their peers in fellow soldiers, fellow Marines, fellow airmen, fellow sailors, you know, we get a chance to sit back and appreciate, even from a distance, the legacy that our parents are building. And for me, at least, that really informed my decision to want to join the military. And just in kind of learning more about your story, it sounds like that was a catalyst for you as you were making your decision as to how you wanted to spend 
the first portion of your career. Is that is that a correct assessment? That is a correct assessment. And I was not keen on going to the Naval Academy. Um, in fact, I hadn't. I had kind of barely made up my mind that I wanted to be in the military and started to look at ways to join the military through the ROTC scholarship program. And it wasn't that I thought that this was my only option. I knew I could go to college and my parents never pressured me to be um, a part of the military. It just seemed kind of like a natural decision where, hey, if I want to find a way to pay for college and, you know, I will, I can join the military. It's been so familiar to me. I've grown up all around it. It just kind of seemed like a, a no brainer. Wasn't particularly informed by any sense of duty or patriotism, which I'm not afraid to admit now because I, I know it, you know, sometimes at a young age, we don't all feel like that. In fact, when I showed up to the Naval Academy, we had our, our detailers. And so we're, we're essentially just a group of, uh, we're plebes. I think you guys are, what are you guys called at West Point, freshmen? Oh, plebes as well. Yeah, plebes we do share well, that. Yes, we don't go. share too many things in common with the Naval Academy, <laughs> but that is one of them. We're on the same page there. Yep, we're all just plebes that first year. So we all show up as plebes, and I remember some of the detailers would go on the, these rants about, you know, patriotism and their sense of duty and commitment. And uh, one of my detailers who had a squad of us for 10 people said, hey, look, guys, we I understand you guys are 18, 19. You might not, maybe you're here for your different reasons. You might not feel it's okay not to, like, be feeling like you're just here for for serving your country right now, but I can promise you, you will you will start to feel this way as you grow up here as midshipmen and even more so as you hit the fleet. I think this guy was was a prior sailor who had enlisted and then found himself in the Naval, Naval Academy, so he was speaking from, you know, the place of wisdom and many years of experience. And, and that's certainly true. I, I developed those feelings later on, and I think as I crossed paths with a lot of, the, a lot of people that worked for my father, and heard the awesome things they had to say about him and just growing up with his his leadership style i also felt a sense of duty to him and duty to my family to be to be as as kind of a stand-up midshipman or a stand-up officer as i could in in kind of morals and discipline and also performance you know whether that was academic at the naval academy or whether that was performance at nuclear power school or performance on the submarine I'd like to say it was all self-motivation, but as I kind of look back, it was it was just motivation to my family, just because people kind of knew who who my father was, and so any poor performance on my part would reflect poorly on my family. So, before we before we take a deeper dive into your experience at the academy and your experience as a naval officer, would love if you could share a little bit more insight into your mom's side of the family. I know. You know, family is something that's deeply important to you. Would love if you could share some insights into the impact that your mom had and the person that you've become today. Yeah. yeah so when I talk about my maybe my my lack of of self motivation in my earlier years, it was probably because my mom made up for it in in discipline and and real motivation from her part. So uh, <laughs> she's she's Hispanic, so she has a strong she's got a strong presence. And uh, she she raised us very strictly, and I'm so grateful to this day for for the way that she raised all four of us, myself and my younger three siblings. Uh, and and before we kind of like before I go down my you know showering my mom in compliments, um, 
want to say that she was born and raised in Santa Cruz, Bolivia. Her father, a very smart man, won a scholarship, petroleum engineering scholarship, to come to the United States and get his petroleum engineering degree from the University of Oklahoma. And so that's kind of what gave her family a great opportunity to succeed when he got his education here in the United States, went back to Bolivia, started his own petroleum engineering firm. Then they themselves were able to travel through his job back to the United States, to places like overseas, Argentina. They moved a couple times in, in their lives as well. And then uh, because of his success, his petroleum engineering firm, he was able to save enough money to send his kids to school here in the United States, um, of which my mom benefited. And she went to the to Oklahoma State University and met my father. So she you know, ultimately decided to leave her family to raise us here, but we would go to Bolivia every summer, almost every summer, which was pretty formative in and of itself for me as a kid. I mean, I was, I was basically spending the whole school year here in the States and I was moving every two years and forming new friendships and finding myself as the new kid all the time. And then you know, at the time was upset that during the summer I couldn't just chill out and play with my new friends. I was having to travel down to uh, Bolivia. And I, I don't mean to complain. I, I loved hanging out with my family. I'm complaining specifically about the fact that they put me back in school <laughs> when I got down there. Um, you, oh, wait, wait. So you went to school in the summer in Bolivia? Is that, is I that did, what you're... Yeah, pretty much every... Oh, so you got much... double school. I got double dose. Um, oh, you know, because I was getting ready to ask you about some of these summer experiences in Bolivia, but you were going to school in the summer. Yeah, I was going to, because they're, so they're, they're in the Southern Hemisphere. So for them, it was winter when we were going. Oh. And so my, my family made a habit of just putting us in school. I don't know if that was just to get us out of the house to, you know, reduce some stress on them. But I think, I like to think it was because it was actually useful for us to learn Spanish oh. and to make more friends and kind of be, you know, fully blend into the city of Santa Cruz and, and the culture there. Like a kid, I resisted for a long time. I sat in the, in the back of class and I would draw things pretty much every day and kind of just tune out. I regret that at, at you know, now. I think I missed a great opportunity to, to really, you know, work on my Spanish and form some lasting friendships. But that's kind of what I did in the summers, and then we would go out on the weekends. Obviously, we would we would visit with our family, which is in in you know Hispanic culture. A lot of the family kind of remains pretty much a, a very tight nucleus in one spot, and so we were having lunches together. Like every day, we would have a large family lunch with with the grandparents, with my grandparents, my my mm. mother, all her siblings, all their kids, my cousins. This this is pretty typical <clears throat> in South American culture for everyone to kind of get together if they can every day. And then we were can going out. Can you tell me about some of these dishes? You know, I'm a, I'm a foodie in training. So can you tell yeah. me about some of these Bolivian <laughs> dishes? I'm, I'm, you make me, I'm, I need to know. I want to be in uh, the know. Yeah, I'm embarrassed because people, this is like the second time I've been asked this question. And I, I realized the first time I can't like produce names of these dishes. But in, okay. um, in Bolivia there, it's very, everything is very corn based. And so we've got things like tamales and then and yuca. Yuca is a root similar to potato. And so they they kind of mash it up. You can have it you can have it boiled just like a you know steamed potato, or you can fry it like French fries, or you can mash it up like mashed potatoes. But there's a plate called masaco that I love. Uh, you can find it in in different places around South America and in the 
uh, Caribbean. But masako is, is essentially mashed up yuca root with things like chicken or pork, maybe some cheese, maybe some extra stuff thrown in there. Of course, we have empanadas, mm. which are amazing. You have savory mm, and sweet okay. empanadas. And then there's another thing I love called cuñapes, which are pretty much a cheese and tapioca flour combination. It's like a, it's basically a cheese ball. It's the kind that you go to the Brazilian uh, steakhouse and you get, you know, as your appetizer before you start eating. But we would have this stuff, you know, every day I would look forward to school being done around noon, go home. We have a large family lunch. Lunch is the main meal there. And then we would go about our day. You know, some people would have their siesta. Right around kind of 4 p.m., we'd have what we call te, which is tea, tea time. And so we'd have some of these. I'm sorry to bother. I'm sorry to interrupt yeah. you here, but I feel like we need to incorporate this. is This is this is why I love hearing about other cultures because I feel like we can take some great notes here on yeah. things like the <laughs> yeah, siesta, <laughs> things like the tea time. I'm like, we, you know, there's nothing wrong with working hard, but do you, oh, it's, yeah. it's 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 good to have a little balance in these things. So I'm oh, yeah, I'm man, glad, and now I can start to see how these things are informing the way that you navigate. So I appreciate you oh, sharing yeah. this. Oh, we kill ourselves here in, in the United States. Americans work really hard compared to, I mean, I don't want to say we work hard. We just work maybe more often, whether that's less efficiently, we don't know. But we definitely stuff as much as we can into our workday. And we don't really take a pause. In some other cultures, you know, the, the kind of the noon lunchtime is that's sacred. And then mm-hmm. after that, you can you can take a siesta, you can go back to work. For us, we were... Me and my mother and my grandmother, we'd have we'd have tea time around four. We'd have these, you know, hand hand things to eat, and then we have a very light dinner. Maybe play a board game. It was pretty nice. It was a pretty nice uh, lifestyle to have, and I'm I'm so very be- grateful for my time over there. One of the cool things that this just has me thinking about is just work culture, and I think that's one of the things that I I really do love and respect about the tech industry is, as you look across all industries, it seems like it's been one of the more forward-leaning and forward-thinking in terms of that work-life balance and finding ways for employees and teammates to make time to decompress and to relax. So definitely a theme that I'd love to unpack here a little bit further in the conversation. But if no one's ever told you this, you you had a fascinating childhood. Like, this is just very cool. I'm just envisioning <laughs> summers in Bolivia, coming back to the States, moving around as a, as a Navy brat. So very, very cool. If it's okay with you, I would love to fast forward to the tail end of your experience at the Naval Academy as you're getting ready to graduate, selecting your 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 military specialty. And one of the pillars that that we really believe in in, in the breakline community is you have to see yourself in the people that you aspire to. And as you were selecting your specific military specialty, you were somewhat of a trailblazer and would love if you could just share some more insight into your experience in selecting the submarine service. Yeah, so this, you're right, I didn't, I guess I didn't have a female role model as I was selecting my service because my year for selecting the submarine service was the third year available to do this. So, and what I mean by my year, I mean my class, my class year 2012. 
they had just opened up the submarine service in 2010 to uh, women in the class of 2010 to be able to select the submarine service. So as those women left, you know, one, I was, you know, as in at the Naval Academy, just like I'm, I'm sure at West Point, you don't know, like your upperclassmen, you may not form that kind of like tight knit with. And so there was uh, like, I didn't know, for example, I didn't know any women from the class of 2010 who had service selected submarines. But I did have several of my upperclassmen, uh, my male upperclassmen who had service selected submarines, and they were people I really looked up to and uh, kept in touch with. And to, to inform my decision ultimately to join the submarine service. But just to back up a little bit there, I, for whatever weird reason, I was already attracted and compelled by the submarine mission. Even as a plebe, as a freshman, we have to do these, I, I'm sure you guys do, we have to do these weekly professional development modules. And so we have a, a flimsy little book and then every week you have, you learn something about the Navy and the Joint Force whether that's like maybe this week you spend time learning about our surface fleet and next week you spend time learning about the Marine Corps and how the Marine Corps is organized. And, and for submarine, for the submarine week, I'm not really sure what stood out to me. Like there wasn't anything specific that I can remember. I just remember being like, this is pretty cool that, that these guys are, you know, known as the silent service and that they operate as, as smaller crews, like smaller kind of tighter knit families. And they do, at least what this book was implying, they do, you know, some some cool, like more sensitive missions. And I thought that was kind of mysterious and, and alluring. So I remember telling my upper class, I would really love to do, I would really love to service like submarines. And they, of course, laughed because it wasn't possible at the time. And uh, so then I started looking See, you at... Had to, um, you had to manifest it. That's, see, they didn't know what you was doing. You said you was going to speak this into existence. Yeah. <laughs> you, was, you was mentally preparing. I love it. I was, yeah. I said, well, this is really cool. I just can't do this. So I started looking at other things, and I wanted to... I was like, well, it might also be cool to be a <clears throat> construction battalion officer, so uh, what's known as CBs. I thought that would be cool. But I remember I went home for... After my plea beer... And I was sitting at the table. My dad was drinking coffee and I was doing something. I can't remember, but he looks up from his coffee and whatever he's reading. And he goes, you know, I think I think they're going to open the submarine service to women soon. And then he goes back down. He puts his coffee back down and he looks back down at his book. And I'm, I'm like, oh, okay, this is what I'm doing. Like, I, I, this is going to happen and I can I can service select this maybe maybe by the time I graduate, and sure enough, that, that next year, my youngster year, was sophomore year, they opened the they opened the submarine service up to women. So yeah, I think ultimately my decision was, you know, I, I was already kind of compelled by the mission. I, you know, the upperclassmen in my company who had service-selected submarines were really stand-up people. I got a chance to do a day, really an overnight, on a submarine cruise as part of our we, we go on this kind of like fleet-wide cruise where we spend time with the Marines. We spend time with the, a surface ship. We spend time on a submarine. We spend time in a squadron or flying, you know, getting a backseat ride on a, a training plane. And I just really liked the way the submarine was smaller. It was more tight-knit. I could see the crew was more familiar with each other. There's a high level of trust that's you know, expected there and a high level of responsibility that each person has to take on. And that was really cool to me. And I knew about myself that I really love 
teams and I, I like I really like you know when a, a team is kind of smaller and can feel more tight-knit and I really enjoy kind of that sense of camaraderie that I picked up on when I was on the submarine and so when it came down to it I was I was taking I was getting my degree in aerospace engineering and all my classmates of course wanted to be fighter pilots and so when it came down to it I said hey do I want to be a pilot or, or do I want to be a submariner and I called my upperclassmen who went submarines that I had, you know, looked up to. And I said, what's the best thing about being a submariner so far? He was already two years. He was two years ahead of me. So he's already two years and almost a year and a half in the fleet at this point. And he said, well, I, I'm not there yet. I'm in the training pipeline, but I just think that I really am looking forward to working with the sailors. I have heard all these sea stories about, you know, how much people love working with these smart sailors. And that's what I'm looking forward to. And then I called another one of my mentor upperclassmen who was a pilot, and I said, what do you love be about being a pilot? He said, well, I really love the feeling of, of just flying my plane, you know, up there. I'm just on my own. This is like, you know, I am flying this, like, awesome fighting aircraft. I really like that sense of independence and, like, and, you know. And I said, well, okay. Like, I, I know myself well enough to know that, while it's probably cool, it would probably be cool and fun to be a pilot. I derive ultimately like my motivation from other people and from working with other people. So that's, that's why I chose to go the submarine route. So I just want to give you some additional kudos here because the work that you were doing in the Navy, highly technical, leadership driven, as you were stating, very high stakes because of the nature of the mission and you spent seven years in the in the service doing this so would love to hear any insights that you had from the experience that you want to share with our listeners oh man that's a hard one i mean i had such an awesome time in the navy and not all seven of those years were on a submarine per se, we have a we have a pretty vigorous training pipeline that takes about a year and a half to two years to complete. So it's back to school, right? Back to being in the classroom after graduation. It's more more rote memorization, more learning of concepts. So I didn't really get to my submarine until I graduated in 2012, and I got to my submarine in in February of 2014. But spent a little over three years, and I think the the best kind of memory and experience that I that I got in the military, and this is, I think, true for everybody who serves in the military, is you're in charge of a lot of stuff. And whether that's, you know, whether that's people, whether that's, you know, the mission, which of course is, is paramount, or whether that's just like the plain and simple like value of the equipment and the things that you're in charge of, it's pretty, it's, it's a lot. And that it's it's hard to kind of like parallel that when you pivot to when you pivot out of the military. I mean, I was ultimately qualified, and I was driving a, a two billion dollar submarine at, at age shoot, let's see, twenty five. And we, you can't you can't you said really. Billion with a, you said billion with a B, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, just making sure, I mean, just making sure all the <laughs> listeners caught that. Okay, you can yeah. proceed. <laughs> yep, and uh, so it's it's kind of hard to, and operating a nuclear reactor to boot. I mean, it's it's hard to, like, get to that level of responsibility unless you, as quickly as, as we do in the military. It's hard to find that in other places. And so looking back on it, that, that experience and kind of, like, the 
the gravity of, of that charge of responsibility wasn't lost on me. And so that kind of having that be on your shoulders uh, and feeling responsible for that stuff at such a young age is pretty is a pretty awesome experience and, and something that I think makes that makes veterans particularly kind of resilient and responsive when we have responsibility, right? We, we usually execute well against that responsibility. Mm. So this, I believe, is a great segue to the next topic that I want to speak with you about. For all of our listeners out there, look, Ariana's about to give you a master's class in the transition because as I was going back and doing my research, I said, man, if, if there was a book on best practices let me tell you, I believe you could be the co-author of that book. I'm checking out your LinkedIn here, that. and it's the truth. And I, I know you're about to give us some insight here, so I'm just uh, telling it how it is. I really love this post that you made as you were transitioning out the Navy, and I, I, I wanted to get some more insight into your breakline experience here. But you said that I came across breakline at a crucial point in my preparation to transition out of the Navy. I knew what I wanted for my next chapter in life but I didn't have a clear plan to get there. Can you share a little bit more about your breakline experience, how it helped you kind of equip you with the tools to make this transition, and then like any insights that you gained and learned about yourself as you were going through this just massive inflection point in your professional career? Yeah, it was definitely an inflection point. And it was definitely challenging, and I mean that <clears throat> for our listeners, I, I mean to say that it's challenging because I, I want everybody to kind of to take it seriously. It, it just benefits you when you dig in on your transition, which is what I found. And so I'll, I'll kind of back it up from there. I think I when I said I knew what I wanted, it was because I had already spent almost four months reaching out to people, pushing myself out of my comfort zone, finding strangers to talk to about their professions. And this was this was 12 months. I started doing this 12 months before my end of, of active service, EAOS. I knew that I'd heard from other people that, you know, it's you can go the easy route of just finding a job, but I knew that the success rate of, you know, or, or really the, the turnover rate of people who kind of do that, who rush through their transition and find a job, they usually go on, you know, within one or two years to find another. And I didn't want to be, I, I didn't want that to happen to me. I wanted to take this pretty seriously. And, you know, I'd also spent a lot of time thinking, what, what do I really want to be when I grow up? And I didn't want to squander mm. an opportunity to, to take a good first step towards what do I actually want to do when I leave the Navy, you know? You. Can you walk me a little bit more through that process? Because, you know, I, I love the emphasis that you placed on this being a challenge. And for anyone who's going through a transition, whether it's from the military or you're transitioning from one industry into the tech industry, as someone who has recently gone through a transition, it is tough. And the stuff that you're talking about in terms of the introspection, you know, being able to reflect and really try to define for yourself what it is that you want to be when you grow up. What are the things that interest you? Like, can you can you walk us through what that process was like as you were trying to move towards move towards your happiness, move towards your dream job? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And I I first want to start out by saying, hey, like the first step is find find a swim buddy because you're not going to do this. Okay. You're not going to take okay. this seriously <laughs> unless you have someone encouraging you and do, doing it themselves. 
And so the only reason I started 12 months before my EAOS was because I had a friend who said, hey, I'm going to take this transition course. You should do it with me. And I was like, well, you know, yeah, I guess so. I, you know, I was going to think about this later, but now is probably a good time. And so he signed up for a transition course uh, called the Honor Foundation. And so he was my accountability buddy is what I call it. Like, you know, like this morning, I said, I set a time I got to be somewhere. I have someone to keep me accountable. I can't. I can't motivate myself all the time like that. You know, it takes other people and that's okay. And I, I like that, you know, I, I set those, those things up for myself so that I show up. So, you know, we took this transition course and part of the honor foundation is to start with your why. Uh, and it's a book by, um, Simon, uh, Simon, Simon Sinek. Sinek. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sinek. I always mess up his name. I feel bad. Um, it's a tricky name. <laughs> yeah. And so, and I was like, this is really cool. This is kind of like, we're going to spend, you know, a good chunk of time, like over a month, kind of like reflecting and going through exercises of finding and identifying what really drives us. When you wake up in the morning, what are the things you love about your job? What are the things you dislike? And and separate those things from your job as well, I really like that I'm writing this report about the thing or whatever. Well, okay, what do you, what about that report do you like? Is it that you are a meticulous person and that and you derive pleasure from like having a level of detail or like organizing things? Like it, what is what is it that drives you in your in your job? And then, you know, take note of those things. And as you go out and you talk to people and you have these cups of coffee, use air quotes because it's not always a cup of coffee, it's usually just a phone call you know, but a cup of coffee as often as you can with somebody, listen to what they're saying and, and listen for those things that resonate with you. You know, like I did when I, when I called my friend who's a submariner and I called my friend who's a pilot and I, I knew already about myself that I like working with other people. And, you know, as, as less cool as it was, you know, to be a submariner per se than a, a pilot, I knew that if I was going to be in my airplane alone all the time, it would be harder to maybe wake up and feel motivated every day. And so I made that decision based on like, based on what I knew was kind of like my, my, my North star and what I derived motivation from and not based on, Hey, this is something that looks cooler or, you know, could potentially be uh, a more fun lifestyle. And so, you know, as people are transitioning, I, I would say look for those things that stand out to you. Understand what drives you already. You need to spend a lot of time reflecting on yourself. You need to spend a lot of time reflecting on maybe like your greatest or proudest achievements, your most formative events of your life. Think about what's what those events made you into as a person, what what you appreciate as a person, what motivates you, and then and then look for those things as people tell you about their careers. Try to find a career that kind of resonates with with the most, many of those things. So you dropping some dimes right now. I'm not going <laughs> to lie to you. You putting some people on game. And I hope if you're in your car, if you're on a run, if you're listening in your office, I've already been through a transition. I'm taking copious notes. So I appreciate you because that's, I think, what you just pointed out is so important. And I love how you referenced moving towards your North Star. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think this equation is going to be a little bit different for everybody. I mean, everyone's got their own interests and their own desires and their own things that make them tick. But I think taking that inventory, which you just spoke about, is so important. It's such a it's such an important part 
of this transition journey. And I love the way that you were very, very intentional about that. And you, you mentioned you mentioned some of the coffee chats. I know this was you know pre-pandemic and you know things were a little bit more open. How many how many conversations would you say you had in this process as you were preparing the transition? Oh man, I mean we were supposed to have twenty five at the end of our initial course, which was three months, and I had twenty five. I think almost exactly. But as I got closer to finding, you know, when I had my aha moment, um, I remember it was because we went and we toured. Chick-fil-A of all places and Chick-fil-A turns out they have these things called innovation cells and that's where you've got your designers, your architects, your industrial engineers and they're doing essentially kind of like design thinking about how do we how do we enhance the customer experience? How do we make people love Chick-fil-A and how do we make it more efficient for people? I mean, you look at the numbers of Chick-fil-A, they've got I think they're like the third most um, like ordered from or revenue generating fast food chain, but they have the 50th amount like in terms of rank. They rank 50th in number of restaurants. So how do they how do they push people through their restaurants so quickly to make up for the fact that they don't have as many as other people and they're you know now third uh, among fast food chains for being the most popular. And it's because they've innovated, right? They were like, well, if we have people, if we kind of like put the lines like this and we have people go out and take your order on, on iPads and like all the while, I mean, it doesn't feel like you're being, you're not just kind of like a consumer as you go through there, you're being greeted with a smile and it's a pleasant experience, right? So I was really, I found that really cool. I said, this is, a, this is something that I feel like matches what I want to do, right? To kind of like have a great customer experience, but also kind of like interweave some engineering, some design thinking, optimization. I want to make things better. I want to have people have a good experience as they use a thing. And and so ultimately my aha moment was at Chick-fil-A Innovation Cell. And I thought, and I did a little bit more research and realized that there's some careers in, in product management, in product uh, analysis, in, in design, you know, design thinking and product design that I was like, okay, this is, I think I've, I think I'm onto something. And that's when my cups of coffee started ramp up because I was on LinkedIn. I was looking up people with maybe product in their title. I was looking up people at software companies who maybe were having experience in the product world. And I knew exactly what I wanted. And it was like precisely at that time where Bethany reached out to me about Breakline, which mm. yeah, was a, it was a smaller gig than it is now. You guys have exploded. It's really cool to see. And so that was December, you know, four months into my kind of transition journey. And uh, when I say it came at exactly the right time, it was because it was because of that. It's because I knew what I wanted. And and Breakline, you guys are experts on, you know, the tech side of the house and understanding where where someone's strengths may fit in terms of role. And then giving a person a chance to actually get behind the curtain and to meet the people at these companies, learn about their jobs, learn about their day-to-day, learn about their culture, really see themselves, like, like you said, see, see yourself in that person. I wouldn't have been able to do that without Breakline. Can you share a little bit more about your Breakline experience? Because I know, I know you end up landing a pretty sweet job at Endural in would love to spend a few moments talking about that. Yeah, I mean, plain and simple. In one word, it was just exciting. It was, hmm. it was nonstop excitement. 
we had, uh, I can't remember the group size. I think it was small. It was 20 or 25 people, obviously facilitated with the, with the wonderful Breakline family. But we were able to, we were able to go around New York City, visit places like PayPal and LinkedIn and Palantir and Facebook. And uh, I think it was, it was then that it was the first time I realized that I, I actually probably could do something in defense. I got really excited about Palantir. And I was like, oh, wow. I surprised myself. I was like, well, I actually, you know, may still be excited about the defense mission. You know, for some strange reason, I was like, I started to talk to people at Paladin. I was like, this is really cool. And I really, it was palpable, right? Their, their sense of like, of mission, sense of purpose, the way they held themselves. I was kind of struck and I, I, it resonated with me. And like you said, I saw myself in them. And so uh, you know, Andrew wasn't wasn't part of the circuit at that time, but I certainly had you know developed a, a sense of respect for uh, the people I met at Palantir. And you know, as it turned out, Andrew has kind of a, a lot of the same kind of genealogy. We, as the company started, a lot of people came from Palantir, and in fact, I mean, it's that's it's, they're even so intertwined, at least like you know, his, in their history with their the founding of of the company you know, via Palantir, a large portion of Palantir members and, and Oculus members, but uh, they chose to continue with the Lord of the Rings kind of naming convention with picking the name Andoril, which is uh, the Sword of the West. So can you share with our listeners what it is, what, what do you do at Andoril? Can you tell me about your day-to-day? Yeah, so my title is Mission Operations Engineer. What that actually means, though, it, when I break it down for people in... Um, who may be used to more conventional job titles. It is a combination of project management, customer engagement. There's a little bit of like business development capture, really just whatever you choose to kind of make out of it. And then there's maybe some flavor of product management. Also kind of depends on what your role is on the project, right? But so at any given time, you can kind of be, you can, you can have those four things more or less. So right now I'm more of a project manager uh, in a customer engagement. On the customer engagement side, I'm less of, you know, I'm less involved in the product on, you know, on my, on this project specifically, actually like almost zero involvement in the product. So essentially we go out and as a mission operations engineer, you are, you are on a project and you owe something to that, you know, by way of that project, you owe something to to that customer, which for us is, you know, our, our partners in uniform, right? And the Department of Defense and the Department of Homeland Security, we are providing them products to help them accomplish their mission. And so, and these aren't out of the box products per se, they are meant to be customized for specific type of mission. So it takes a person to, to understand what that mission is and to work with, work with our partners in understanding that mission and, and then go back to engineering and say, look, for this, for this mission, we're going to need to tweak the the product in this way, and whether that's already an option, you know, great. And if it's not, then we get it on the roadmap and we work towards that, towards ultimately enhancing that customer experience, right? And and even more important than that, like accomplishing their mission, helping them accomplish their mission with our tech. Um, in a nutshell, that's that's what I do. But when we get down in the weeds, it's it's like actually kind of like setting planning conferences with our partners explaining, you know, doing some education about the product, 
actually comparing, hey, if this is, if what I'm hearing is correct, if this is your mission, then we, you know, this is how I would recommend actually deploying this product. So, you know, actually kind of mapping out where they're going to, what they're going to do with it, how they're going to configure it, where they're going to put it. And then I can also, I'm also probably involved in the actual deployment of that product to their site, the installation. Um, obviously, a lot of, every single step of this is aided by multiple teams. Uh, but I essentially, I am accountable to our partners for, for all of these steps in the process. And then I even, in some cases, even embed myself with, with our partners and give them kind of like, hey, this is left seat. We're going to do some left seat, right seat. We're going to train you. I'm going to make sure that this is that this is absolutely the best um, version of the product that it can be for your mission. And then we kind of, you know, if, if some of our products are meant to be there for a long time, then I'm managing the sustainment of that product. And, you know, if you get more, if your product is maybe more nascent, like my last project, then you also have a large level of influence in the direction that that product needs to go because you are the voice of, of the customer, of our partners in uniform. So you've been at Enduro for almost two years now, and I know during that time, the company has experienced just some phenomenal growth. What's been the most rewarding part about being a part of the Enduro team over the past two years? So I would say even from the get-go, I was very impressed with the the drive that everybody has at Andrel. It is, it is really motivating to show up to work and like, you're already there, you're already on your A game, right? But you're, all your coworkers are on their A game too. So just collectively, it brings you up. You're all kind of like brought up by each other's standard to just excellence. It's really refreshing when everybody is is putting in, they're working hard. They are, they feel all generally, we're all very accountable people and we all have, you know, we all handle responsibility very well. And so to work in that environment where you're like, hey, this is like, nobody here is allowing any any slack to be picked up by anyone else. We're, we're, all, we're all working hard and we're all handling our things. It was, it's very refreshing to kind of work in that environment. And also, I, I think the se- the second thing that struck me immediately was just how excited everybody was, how happy and positive people are around around the office. I was kind of taken aback, even my first week at Andrew when everybody was all smiles, and it's still that way. I mean, it's it's been hard because we've been out of the office for so long, but now as we're all back, um, the energy and positivity is contagious. So those two things, those two things really get me motivated every day to go into the office and work with, uh, with some amazing and very talented people. So there's one last question that I wanted to ask you because I absolutely love your story. I feel like we're getting a chance to see you on the other side, stepping into our continuing work that you love rather. You seem pretty bulletproof. From, from the outside looking in, wanted to ask you, was there any, was there ever any point of doubt? Was there ever any point where you weren't sure if things were going to pan out the way you wanted to? I know a lot of people who are, are stepping into their own transitions, you know, are having to think through some of these things. Can, can you share if there were any moments where 
you know, you you weren't quite confident in in the direction in which you were going, or maybe you did have some doubt. Yeah, I mean, specifically, specifically in transition, in life in general, you know, you we're all going to experience our struggles, and I would say that you know I'm no different. I've had times in my life where things looked pretty, things looked pretty dark, and I I think you know, the more of those kind of experiences you have, whether that's like, you know, what on the scale of like actually bad those things are, like maybe in terms of like, hey, I'm I'm like, you know, leaving ninth grade and going to a new school and like that's really terrible but in the grand scheme of things it's not. But the more kind of experiences you have where you realize like, oh I, you know, it's actually not so bad. I'm I'm a pretty resilient person. Whether or not you kind of realize that about yourself, if you tell yourself that, it's gonna be okay. This is this is life and I'm going to be resilient about this, you'll find you can you can get through a lot and you can get through um, a large amount of, of loss or at least the kind of like the fear of, of loss. And is and also if you tell yourself you've got friends, you've got a network, you've got mentors who will help you, you know, no matter kind of what you've done, you know, I hope I hope all of us have those people who are gonna have our backs. But specifically in the transition, people told me that transition is hard. And they told me, you're going to have all these feelings after you get out of the Navy. And I said, well, that's probably not true. I've done a lot of work towards my transition. I've, I've really put the time to thinking about myself and, and reflecting on, on who I am. And I've put a lot of preparation into making sure I'm, you know, I pick the best possible job for my, for my desires and that I feel prepared for this job. Like, it's not just something I'm kind of like going to step right into and drown. And they said, well, don't, you know, you'll, you'll see when you, when you kind of get out, you'll have all these feelings. And of course, like even my first day, I, you know, as I was pumping gas, I realized, wow, this is like, this is like pretty expensive gas out here in California. And it's getting uh, real. Get, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I don't get like, uh, I don't get basic housing allowance anymore. Like, and I could, I could lose my job now pretty much any day. It's definitely different than the military. And I have, I remember having this like, realization on my first or second day on the job. And I was like, oh yeah, I feel it now. This is getting weird. And, um, you know, I've, I've had my times of imposter syndrome. I think we all do. And I think uh, it's important to share that, you know, as a veteran transitioning or really anyone who transitions into a new career field, you're going to have imposter syndrome. You're going to feel like everyone else is, is so much more amazing and talented. And, you know, what are you doing there? And you, maybe you might feel like it might even be so bad where you feel like your job is at risk, right? I would say those feelings are, are natural and you can, you can't really give those, you, you know, don't give those, don't dwell on those kind of thoughts. You're only feeling that way because you're comparing yourself and you're taking, you're removing other people from the background context that, you know, maybe the situation they're in or the experience they specifically have to be good at that one thing. I would just, I experienced a lot of these feelings, less so now. I mean, I'm almost two years into my job, but the first six months, longer even, I mean, even even a year in, I was having some of these doubts and I was, you know, moreover, unsure if, if I was approaching my career planning as more like too much in a military mindset where like, you know, even now it's like, hey, do I, am I am I not being aggressive enough? Am I not asking for what I want? Am I, am I supposed to do this? Like as a military officer, you're going to have doubts. And I would say it it always just helps to have people to reach out to and talk to, like have mentors, collect mentors, you know, thank your mentors for the time that they're giving you. 
because they're going to get you through those kind of thoughts. See, I was trying to tell our listeners you was about to drop a master's class over here. I don't know if they believe me, but I was trying to tell them <laughs> you was going to come through and drop a master's class. And this is my favorite one thing subject. that I just wanted to... <laughs> well, look, and I, you know what's so cool about it is I feel like you have earned, you have earned the reward of stepping more fully into your happiness. And... You know, like I said, I mean, even, you know, what's so funny is I feel like you can learn so much about people, even through small interactions. I love the, the intentionality, the thoroughness that you bring to every single thing that you do. And I am so thankful, so glad that we have an opportunity to share this message with our community. So on behalf of the entire Breakline fam, we thank you for making the time. We thank you for sharing your insights and your wisdom. Uh, do you have any parting words you want to share with our with our breakliners? Anything that's on top of mind that you just want to share before we let you go? Yeah, well, first off, Kayvon, I want to thank the Breakline family. Like I said, I wouldn't be here without without Breakline and without you guys to be my accountability buddies and push me even further outside my comfort zone and, and show me, uh, you know, encourage me to pursue these things and, and also prove like I'm not an imposter. I deserve I deserve to be here. And I, I do want to tell all of our listeners that you deserve, you deserve that job. Uh, you've got to work for it and you have to, it's going to be hard, right? <laughs> and it was definitely hard for me. And there were times where I was like, I, I don't want to send this thank you note. I just want to go to bed. I have a busy day tomorrow. And I pushed through and that was pretty much daily that I was kind of on LinkedIn, sending thank you notes, having phone calls. It's going to be hard, but you deserve that job. And, um, and don't, don't tell yourself you don't. And as long as you kind of pursue it vigorously, you'll be in that seat. Mm. And, and where I'm from, that's what we call a mic drop moment. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much once again for your time, my friend. It was an absolute pleasure sharing this conversation. And for all our listeners, if you enjoyed what you heard, you know we're going to ask you to do one of three things. You could like, subscribe, or if you really got a moment, we'd love if you would leave a review. Uh, just to let us know what you think about this content. We're going to keep the great stories coming your way. But hope you enjoyed, and we cannot wait to see y'all on the high ground next time. This is Kenny Vaughn with Ariana Pibus, and we are signing out from the Breakline HQ. Have a blessed one, everyone. <laughs>